0: Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We're speaking on Thursday, May 11th, 2023. Today, we are returning to focus on the issue of housing, including the lack of progress in the state budget that was passed earlier this month after about a month-long delay past the start of the new state fiscal year. But also what could happen in this relatively brief post-budget legislative session in Albany, which runs through early to mid-June. They can extend it a little bit if they want to. Or even into next year's state budget session when Governor Hochul has promised to come back again to push her ambitious New York Housing Compact plan that is aiming to build 800,000 units of new housing across the state over about a decade. That plan was, of course, offered by the governor early this year, but no agreement was reached in the state budget passed in early May, despite housing being in many ways the number one crisis facing New York State and City, and that includes both the supply of housing and the affordability of housing, which are also, of course, related. If you've been a regular listener to this show, you know we've been spending a lot of time on housing and getting a variety of perspectives from tenant organizers to state legislators, sometimes on the show to discuss different things, but we always get to housing pretty much, to a really good conversation with the New York State Housing Commissioner, Ruth Ann Visnowskis, that everybody should still check out if you haven't listened to it yet, and others, and we continue that today. My guest here on this episode is Basha Gerhards, Senior Vice President of Planning for REBNY, the Real Estate Board of New York. Basha Gerhards leads REBNY's policy work on issues related to housing, land use, zoning, resiliency, and community development. She's worked on city and state legislation, focused on advancing major projects, expanding access to housing vouchers, and much more all part of Rebney's focus on producing housing for New Yorkers and those who want to become New Yorkers. Previously, Basha served as senior land use advisor to Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer, and prior to that worked for the New York City Department of City Planning. Rebney, for those unfamiliar, according to its website, is New York City's leading real estate trade association. Over 125 years old, it's been... A foremost voice for the industry, representing the city's agents, brokers, building owners, managers, and developers. And it has been working on a variety of policy issues constantly, of course, at the New York state and city levels. Housing becoming a top, top focus area for Governor Hochul after she won election in this past fall's race. Mayor Eric Adams coming into New York City. In the beginning of 2022, also with a lot of focus on housing in various ways and the profile of REBNY being raised as part of those discussions and trying to influence the direction of those government policies. Very quickly, before I bring Basha on, a couple of other quick things. If you've missed any recent episodes of the show, you can find them all at Max Politics wherever you get podcasts, or we have them all at the Gotham Gazette website. Just most recently, I am also had a conversation this week, a very different topic, some overlap, but I spoke with the New York City Council Mental Health Committee Chair, Council Member Linda Lee, about the new mental health roadmap plan put out by the New York City Council. So check that episode out when you get a chance. Also recently, a really good conversation with New York State Senator Gustavo Rivera, talking about the state budget deal, what was in it, what wasn't. We talked a lot about health policy because he's the the chair of the health committee in the New York State Senate, but we also got into housing quite a bit. And other great guests and topics, check them all out when you get a chance, after you listen to this one, of course, and find all of our reporting at GothamGazette.com. We have some really good coverage of what is and isn't in the state budget deal, focused in on a variety of topics, but mostly focusing in on Health, healthcare, housing, climate, and some other very big topics and other coverage at Gothamgazette.com as well. Also, very quickly, just as a reminder, and if you've been a regular listener to this show, you're you're familiar with a lot of this, but the major topic at hand here being housing, Governor Hokel's major housing plan, some of the, the biggest planks to it included. The idea of setting into state law mandatory housing growth targets all over the state with incentives and the possibility of overrides if there are local projects that would add to growth to meet those targets, but they're not being approved by localities. And there were a wide variety of other strategies involved. There were also, perhaps most prominently, or one of the most prominent pieces being mandatory growth around mass transit hubs in the MTA region, transit-oriented development, uh, and a variety of other planks to the puzzle. There are other pieces of the governor's housing plan in there as well that aren't exactly about the zoning and the mandatory targets, but are part of that development plan, including an extension of, and the hope for a replacement of the 421A program that is a tax exemption for developers when there is affordable housing as part of development in, in broad strokes, basement apartment legalization efforts, the effort to legalize accelerated dwelling units, and more. Then there were also a variety of other housing policies on the table, mostly being pushed by the legislature, including uh, rental assistant money, especially focused on public housing tenants. That's basically the one housing thing that really got done in the budget was a new pool of money that will help address some of the NYCHA and public housing rent arrears crisis, then there was also in the offing and not passed, a new housing access voucher program, and of course, the good cause eviction legislation. So those are some highlights to remind people a lot of the policies on the table. Let's bring on our guest today, Basha Gerhard, Senior Vice President of Planning for the Real Estate Board of New York. Thank you for being here. Welcome. How are you?
1: Uh, thanks for having me, Ben. I'm I'm doing well. The weather is beautiful and I get to talk about zoning. So I'm, I, you know, it's not a bad You're day. Yes, <laughs>
0: right. So, you know, in some respects, um, Governor Hochul laid out her housing agenda in early January. Uh, your organization, Rebney was was complimentary, enthusiastic. There was a bit of optimism. I think lots of people who are pro-housing growth, pro-development, um, were wary because they knew it would be a big lift to get her ambitious program done. Uh, immediately, there were questions from you know the suburbs where they don't want to grow a lot of housing, and you know and all all sorts of things. But there was uh, people were pretty happy to see her take take that on. Uh, there was some optimism. Fast forward a few months, the budget deal gets reached. Basically, nothing's in there on housing. And I've been asking lots of uh, recent guests here, including State Senator Gustavo Rivera and others how that is possible for state leaders to not address basically the number one crisis facing the state, but take us into just broad overview sort of your hopes at REBNY, you know, going into this state session and how um, you know, a lot of that hope from you and others sort of came crashing down in the deal that was reached um, with, with virtually no progress and folks from your perspective and others that differ in some ways have been pointing to this issue of this supply crisis, this lack of housing growth. There's lots of data out there. Uh, I think you might even have some more recent data, but talk a little bit about sort of the hopes at the beginning of this budget season in Albany, the results and how you frame the issue that um, should be taken on here.
1: So I, I was joking about the weather being beautiful and getting to talk about zoning, and that <laughs> makes me happy. And 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 yes, um, you know I I think one of the things that's really important in this work is to not assign feelings to to budgets or or, or policies, right? This is really about um, where does the data lead us, and are we going to make progress on topics and issues and, and a number of and everything you've laid out. These are all uh, individually and certainly collectively challenging topics. So you know I, I think one of the hardest things is we are talking about things that are very personal to people on an individual basis, to elected officials on a constituency level or on on a district level, a neighborhood level. But in order to solve these types of problems, we do have to start taking a macro lens. What are are those solutions at a citywide level, at a regional level, at a statewide level? And so, you know, looking at the governor's housing proposal, and she was very clear it was a moonshot. Mayor Adams talked about a moonshot of 500,000 units. It was this was more about aspiration and what are the different tools that we can put together to to start to unpack what what can really feel in, in some moments and going back to feelings really hard and challenging and intractable. And then we start looking at the data, and yes, people can start to have more feelings, but I I do want to take a moment to pause and and start looking at some of those numbers and and why it is important that we talk about those feelings and and these policies. Um, Since the expiration of 421A, and 421A was responsible for nearly 70% of our rental housing production, rental housing production in New York City being, in our opinion, the most important housing that we should be focused on because two-thirds of New York City households are Renters. Uh, since the expiration of that program, we went from 73 filings per month during the first half of uh, 2022 to less than 30 filings. Um, you know, on a, on the last over the last four months for March 2023, only 24 new multifamily foundation filings were submitted by developers to the New York City Department of Buildings. So this starts to get concerning. You know, I start thinking about how are we doing housing production wise before this year, before 2023, before. 2022. Um, what I always like to try and put into context, um, you know, we were estimated to reach a population of 8.8 million people in 2030. We reached that population in 2020. Only 10% of our housing was actually constructed in the last 10 years. And I'm gonna throw a lot of tens here, but we're 10 years ahead in population growth, 10 years behind in housing production, and most of our housing is more than 10 years old, which means at least 90% of our housing needs some major system repair. It needs a new roof. It needs a new boiler. So we we have a lot of challenges and a lot of it. We have a rapidly aging housing stock. We're not producing enough and people are still moving here and we want people to st- still move here and, and contribute to our economic growth and the vitality of the city. So th- that's a lot of numbers, but, you know, it's a, all of... One way of looking at this is saying we're not producing enough, and we also need do need to have policies that focus on the people who live here and our existing housing uh, stock
0: as well. So, so the 421A program was allowed uh, by the legislature. The governor wanted to extend it, to, allowed by the legislature to expire last year. The um, efforts to replace it with a slightly different program didn't go anywhere. There was also an effort by the governor now to extend the time period where projects eligible for the now expired exemption could access it. Um, There are some questions about whether this is even on the table for legislators at all, or they wanna sort of let this new era set in and see how the market will adjust. But just to be clear on on something you said, I just wanna make sure I have this right. In March of 2023, in new york city there were 24 new multi-family building foundation filings submitted by developers in new york city
1: yes 24 new multi-family foundation filings for all of new york city for all five boroughs for 8.8 million people where we do not have enough housing supply
0: and that's roughly a third of the average during early 2022 when, when 421A was still applicable. Correct. So what is the, let's just stick with that. Then this is developers saying for it to make financial sense for us to build multifamily rental housing, we require this program or it mostly requires this program. Can you explain a little bit about that and, and how people should understand that? Because there's obviously the perspective of, well, without this tax exemption, uh, developers will make less profit. But once they adjust to the fact that it's just expired and isn't around anymore, the economics will look different and more construction of multifamily rental housing will start up again. <laughs>
1: I would say that is wishful thinking, or at least that is um, very far out thinking in terms of of the horizon here. And and I'm going to go back to we have a housing crisis right now. Um, Development pipelines or or the construction process is a long process. There is multiple, I would say, stage gates within the city uh, in terms of the permitting process, the assemblage of lots, the the financing, all of these things take time. Uh, This is not a process that uh, starts up very quickly overnight. And you do need uh, public policy interventions or or public policy support to make sure that that pipeline continues. So a couple of things to keep in mind with New York City, uh, you know, I mentioned our population growth during that time and even during the last 100 years, whereas when you look at other uh, major global cities, you know, typically they add land to to their city boundaries. We are still the same amount of square footage that we were 10 years ago, 50 years ago, than we are today. So the way we add land is through density and through our zoning rules. But our zoning rules um, are controlled by the state, which is why a number of the conversations that were happening at the state level were really important when we're thinking about how do we increase housing supply and the opportunity for housing production. Um, we have a very, I would say, different property tax system or underlying tax structure than other municipalities. When you start talking about housing supply in the sense that our property tax system in a lot of ways penalizes multifamily uh, development uh, and new construction with a higher rate than, say, someone who has a condo or a single family home or even a two family home. Uh, None of these things individually, if fixed, will change you know, will be enough change to kind of offset everything. And I think that's why when we talk about housing supply and we talk about zoning, um, when we even look at something like the city's mandatory inclusionary housing program, it was always predicated on the use of a tax tool, you know, to offset one aspect of the challenges in housing construction. Another thing to keep in mind, especially when we're talking about affordable housing, which I think is also, you know, Pretty uni- uniform agreement that that is something that is also very important when we're talking about housing production. Um, affordable housing is also is known as income restricted housing. It means the rents are going to be set at a certain percentage of someone's income. Those rents are inherently set below market rate. In a lot of cases, when we're talking about uh, especially deeply affordable or extremely low income affordable, those rents are being set at a rate that is below what it costs to operate the unit. So. I, I talked about 421A being responsible for 70%, nearly 70% of our multifamily housing production. Approximately 90% of our multifamily housing production relies on some type of tax tool. So nearly everything that's built when you're looking at an apartment building today, um, when it's including affordable housing is using something from government. The beauty of 421A in a lot of ways is it was not a check to a developer. Um, HPD, HCR, these are the, you know, city and state housing, um, entities, respectively, they were not writing a check to one of the revenue members saying, we're going to give you money for you to build this. What it was really about was foregone tax revenue. The city was uh, would continue to collect the same amount of taxes as it would um, prior to the construction of that new multifamily development. So whether it had been an empty lot, a two-story building, a five-story building, whatever the taxes were from that, those would continue to be paid um, for the you know lifetime of, of that tax tool. That differs from Other tax tools, um, these are 420C, Article 11, these tools are always partnered with um, what we refer to as term sheets, and those term sheets are direct subsidy dollars. Those are checks being written in order to offset the cost of operating, constructing, and maintaining over time those um, affordable units or at a higher percentage share of the project. All of which is a very long way of saying, like, none of this is easy. Um, there's also lender metrics that get thrown in. There's risk. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing that play out in the conversations around the rent guidelines board this year. Um, insurance is being one of the, the kind of top drivers for expense growth. Insurance is based on risk. It's a base based on revenue collection and the regulatory environments, right? So you see all these different cost drivers. All of that factors into whether someone will build or not build. So uh, and unfortunately, it's not as simple as saying like, oh, we'll wait it out. Uh, the market will reset. The way for the market to reset is labor costs would have to go down double digits. Uh, the assessed value and taxes would have to go down very significantly. And is our density rules going to change in such a way where you can kind of offset all of those other costs to such a degree?
0: So. That gets, so is it, is it the case though, as we talk here about multifamily, you know, we talk about rental apartment buildings basically. Right. Um, and we talk about the 421A program working with the mandatory inclusionary housing program at the city level, um, which, you know, there's documentation going back to, uh, the beginning of mandatory inclusionary housing in New York city passed under the, the, the de Blasio administration that, it was meant to coincide, as you said, with um, the 421A program to really see that sort of mixed income rental housing built. Um, is it the case that real estate developers are mostly looking at other forms of development? Is it, is it that they're looking at other types of investment? Is it just going to be about building more Condos, what, what, what? You know, sort of, where is the real estate development community at? If, uh, as you say, it would be wishful thinking that there would just sort of be a near term or even medium term here market reset that would lead developers to be more interested in apartment building, rental apartment building development. What, what, what's happening now, and what should people be aware of, if anything, in terms of what where this might go instead?
1: So we have a number of macroeconomic factors that make even this conversation challenging, right? We have the highest inflation, I believe, in my at least my working career, if not my lifetime. Uh, interest rates are the highest that they've been in a quite a while. Um, we have a number of, I would say, a looming commercial debt crisis potentially in, in terms of, you know, again, commercial debt tends to focus on um you know, ballooning interest rates and or variable interest rates. So, you know, unfortunately, the revenue for those buildings have gone down at the same time that their mortgage payments have gone up. Um, you know, that starts to create a lot of concern. We've we've seen um, the regional bank uh, closures or, or failures, uh, depending on which headline you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, all of this is very concerning. Um, what you start to see, though, is banks start to become less um, less willing to take risk. And new construction represents a lot of risk. Uh, Like I mentioned, the multiple stage gates of development uh, for New York City, the multiple rounds of permitting, uh, the the rules, compliance, safety, all of these things are important. We want construction to happen safely. We want buildings to go up in a way that is um, sound engineering and and in accordance with the rules. Um, But this means time and effort and and cost, and that also creates risk. So, you know, whether banks are going to loan in an environment where, you know, there's all these other kind of macroeconomic headwinds, you know, you asked are are developers looking to do more here? There's always going to be someone who wants to do more. I did mention there were 24 new multifamily foundation filings in March 2023. I think the question to me is from a public policy perspective, are they in a position to do enough to address our housing crisis? Um, Are the rules in place where we're going to see the scale of development that we need to address our supply shortage and to build the type of affordable housing that many New Yorkers need. And the answer to that right now is, is no. You know, developers are going to build elsewhere where the incentives are in place, where, where the rules are encouraging development. And that's what we are seeing. Um, Other municipalities aren't seeing this precipitous drop in construction, um, with the exception of a few that have some, I would say, outlier rules. And St. Paul, Minnesota is a perfect example of a municipality that had an outlier rule in which they um, passed good cause. And, and a good cost statute that effectively capped rents for all housing, new, existing, everything in between, and their uh, development permits dropped eighty percent basically overnight. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, let's 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 come back to that. <laughs> well, we can come back to that. That's, that's, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's that's a big one. I do want to get to that. But but let's just uh, in terms of the the sort of state legislative agenda for. Um, Rebney and for the real estate development community in the city. Clearly here a focus on 421A trying to get some sort of new program, uh, tax abatement program. Um, there was also a push around uh, lifting the flare floor area ratio, FAR cap. Um, Thank you for city. not saying
1: far. I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> uh, cap in the city, which in essence limits the density of, uh the buildings uh in the city that can be built um you wanted to see more uh policies passed to allow conversion of commercial buildings to housing those were like some of the key real estate priorities for New York City that you wanted to see out of the state budget season that didn't get done were you fully behind the governor's broader housing compact program with these mandatory targets for all community districts in New York City and all municipalities outside the city? Um, was was sort of the fulsome of this this plan and this program something that you were strongly behind, or are you more focused on those sort of narrow pieces?
1: So we've been on record, I believe now, two years straight about the need, at, at least at the state level, about the need for, I would say, state intervention and regional growth and, and really fair share in housing production. Um, you know, I've, I think I've mentioned several times now that New York City does not produce enough housing. Um, we do produce more than our uh, neighbors. And so when we talk about the housing crisis and the housing shortage, it is not limited to the boundaries of the five boroughs. This is a regional problem and it is a regional challenge and a regional opportunity. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that are challenging when we start talking about housing targets and all these different tools, uh, you know, as, as a zoner, I'm like, oh, I know what ADUs are, and I know what TOD is, and I understand, you know, FAR, and and I understand, you know, what the goals are. But this really is um, underscores the importance of community engagement and education around what we're talking about here. Um, similar rules have been passed in other states; um, they they exist. Uh, you know, the sky has not fallen. Development is occurring. Um, To put into context though, California, which has a number of very similar statutes um, that have been enacted, those took several years. In fact, those took six years to to get through the legislative process. And, And so, you know, Starting the conversation now starting the conversation last year is incredibly important. Continuing that conversation is going to be important. Um, There's a lot of benefits to trying to do it all at once. And there's also benefits to, you know, trying to do one thing at a time. the important thing what though is starting the conversation and and starting the engagement and you know those are things you know that i certainly hope to see continued around these really important tools no single tool is going to solve our housing crisis we need all of them and i think it's a question of degrees so looking at the housing compact and and again this moonshot of 800,000 units the the moonshot was grounded in data collection where what are municipalities doing right now here is a suite of options to help them get to the targets that are being set in, in some municipalities we're we're not talking about uh a thousand units we were we were talking about 20 units 80 units please build 80 units of housing next to that train station on the empty parking lot i don't know if that was made accessible to everyone when, when mm-hmm. we're talking about this um, mm-hmm. And, you know, when we t- a lot of times when we talk about zoning and, and we can talk about what's going to be happening on the city level with the city of yes and these three citywide text amendments, there's a lot of engagement that occurs through the local land use process. Um, when I look at, you know, kind of the package and everything, you know, you had the suburb saying, don't come in and tell us what to do. And the city saying, please remove your restrictions on telling us what to do. And and something got lost in all of that.
0: hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is where the governor is saying that she's going to come back and has more time now to continue to build consensus around uh, around her ideas and her program. And, and we'll see how that goes. So so coming back to some. Well, first, I think just to throw this out there, responder or, or not, but I think, you know, something that got lost in some of this discussion was the ways in which some of the governor's plan would apply in New York City. In a lot of the lower density areas, especially around subway stations, that, again, at the local level, there's a lot of city council members and other local interests who may or may not speak for the fullness of the constituencies in those areas or the larger city who are just fine with that lower density, right? And then some very vocally so, Um and and to me, especially around the conversation around transit-oriented development, absolutely in the suburbs as well, around the commuter rails and all that, but in the city, that sort of got lost in the shuffle a little bit. And I'm not sure um, the governor focused on it enough. I'm not sure the mayor was really out there talking about it. Um, and so that, that got lost in the shuffle a bit to me. And you hear the borough presidents in various boroughs talking about wanting to build everywhere and being ready for some of those, you know, quote unquote battles with some local city council members and others. But state action on that level would have removed a lot of those city battles, right? It would have, it would have made a lot of those city battles much less fraught if the state is coming in. And this is the whole idea of a state zoning framework, or at least state required growth with zoning overrides um, is to say, we got to stop, having all these fights over individual plot rezonings or smallish community rezonings and that there wasn't really a lot of voices out there saying, you know, how important it would be for New York city. I think so much of the, or, or controversial or whatever you want to call it, but there wasn't as much discussion of that and what it would mean for a lot of parts of, especially, I think Brooklyn, Queens and the Bronx, um, and and talking about that versus how much of the oxygen got sucked up around the suburban conversation. Any I think thoughts it's, on that?
1: Yeah, I think it's very fair to say a lot of conversation was devoted to the suburban component, um, in, in kind of the more global conversations. You know, I think what's interesting in the on the New York City context is this this tension has always existed between the the local, like the block, the neighborhood, the community board, the community board ver- versus the borough, the borough versus the rest of the city. Um, but that's what makes this work and you know engaging and, and interesting. Um, solving for those tensions is really about, again, education and community engagement. And you know, that's where leadership is really important, both at the city and the state level. Um, I, I think to your point, though, the state, the governor was really trying to set a growth target and then provide a suite of tools to get you there. Um, it was not saying you must build at this density at this specific location. So I think a lot of that got lost in the conversations and kind of some of the fear-mongering of you're gonna come in and tell me where what I'm gonna do. Um right. the idea
0: of of a lack of local control was extremely, you know, clearly overblown and um, you know, again, likely not enough done on the other side of the equation to dispel uh, some of that criticism and and such. And I think maybe the governor has come to realize some of that, but, um, I also didn't mean to say, and I think you sort of corrected me without, without saying it directly. I didn't mean to say there wouldn't still be battles over individual proposals because obviously there would be right. The, the, the state's not going to come in mandating what gets built, where it's much more, these targets need to be met. Otherwise there will be, the ability for a state board to override local decisions or, you know, insist on certain development, uh, you know, give approval to certain things that are, that are caught up in, uh, local debates, nimbyism and, and so forth. Um, on, on all this mayor Eric Adams has this plan city of yes, there's some major zoning text amendments being worked on by the department of city planning and partners, they're out with their first one, which is more climate focused, but but relates to housing as well. And the big housing one is in development. Before we get into any of those specifics, I don't even know if we will really have time on it, but maybe we can touch on it quickly. The mayor came to your gala, the Reb- Rebney event, and he sort of said something very publicly about like, we need everybody behind the governor's housing plan. When he said that, it was too late. I mean, n- not that the mayor had not been supportive of it, but- he wasn't, again, exactly out there taking a very vocal leadership role. I don't know how much the discussions with the governor's office and the mayor's office, I I don't have a great amount of insight into whether there was more conversation. The governor herself wasn't really out there that much on it. So, um, but when I come back to a lot of these housing discussions, we clearly now have a governor who is, has taken on something that, no recent uh, prior governor has taken on and gets a lot of credit from pro housing folks on that, and even from people who are you know more more uh, tenant you know protection focused people wanted her agenda to be different, but they give her credit for taking on housing as the big crisis facing New York. We also seem to need in New York City the mayor to really step into that situation. Say a little bit from your perspective about sort of what's needed in terms of mayoral. Leadership on this um, and and the and the sort of challenges of Mayor Eric Adams saying he's ready to go big on housing. as you say, he had his own five hundred thousand unit sort of moonshot goal. A lot of it depends on state action. But um the role of mayoral leadership on this and sort of what comes next here on that.
1: So I'm, I'm lucky I get to focus on numbers and zoning text and I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> Not leave. on the politics. All right. All right. I'll, I'll leave. No, that is what the podcast is about. Um, I will say this. I think the governor and the mayor have been very consistent in their support of each other. And they have been very consistent in saying that housing is important and that we need regulatory reform to get there. You know, whether, you know, I think it's very easy to say the next morning or even the night of an event. Right. Like, oh, where were you yesterday or this? Um, There are teams of people who are working on this. There are, you know, there's an entire Senate and Assembly legislative body. You know, I I think the thing that did bother me was a lot of a number of people saying, oh, we need to talk more about these issues or we need to study them more. You know, the lifting the 12 FAR cap, and this is also a good tie back to this idea of community engagement. 12 FAR, there's been a bill around for nine years. There's, there's letters out there from, from, I would say the, you know, the preservation groups and tenant, um, groups and, and community groups saying, don't do this. So this idea that, oh, we need to keep talking about it. It's like, well, we have talked about it a lot. Are we going to make a decision on it this year or not? To me is more of the question. Um. I think what a lot of people miss in 12FAR, again, is a perfect example of this. The state acting and saying the city can go ahead and do more on 12FAR when it comes to residential development and residential density does not eliminate the public process. The city would still have to go in and say, in this neighborhood, for these land use region- reasons under environmental review where we have mitigated any adverse impacts, we are saying that this is appropriate and there's going to be a, a zoning text change and a zoning map change that goes through the public review and goes through goes to the affected community board and goes to the borough president and goes to the city council for adoption after it's been heard at, by the city planning commission. So, right, like there's all these steps, again, these stage gates before that change even goes into effect. But because now for you know, and I forget now if it's the eighth Ninth or 10th year that we have said we are not moving forward on allowing the city to study this. We're just another year behind studying it. So when we get to the city of yes, right, the these three citywide text amendments, and we start thinking about what could be in zoning for housing opportunity, um, the city has already said very clearly they're looking to even the playing field on floor area bonuses for senior housing and affordable housing. And those are important changes, but they can't create an additional floor area bonus for those things outside of the current structure because the state did not act on 12 FAR. They can't study something that goes beyond that. Um, on office conversions because there wasn't an MDL change. And yes, I would like to think. Multiple dwelling law. Right, right, multiple dwelling law, (laughs) uh, which controls whether someone uh, can convert their building um, after a certain age or not. Uh, Because there was not movement on that during the budget process, uh, you know, There's a number of things that the city can do on its own coming out of the city task force recommendations on the office adaptive reuse. So the city can change the geography. They can say, we are going to allow conversions in these other high density and middle density commercial districts throughout the city, not just in, you know, midtown Manhattan. We're going to allow it in other places. They can do that on their own. Um, They can change some of the open space requirements and some of the rules around what the building looks like and what you can do with the building. But they can't change that fundamental structure because the state multiple dwelling law says they can't. And and that was the change that was needed. So there's a lot that the city can continue to do on a day to day basis. And I think the mayor has been really clear. He wants to go after, you know, administrative burdens and inefficiencies and all those things that add to that really long development pipeline and add time and cost. And that will help
0: you know as as we're talking about with sort of these statewide proposals and then you're getting into in the city and and the mayor and his um administration are working on this uh, city of yes housing opportunity i believe is is what they've titled it um zoning text amendment is. You know, in New York City day to day, we often get very focused on the battles over single rezonings, right? And some of them are bigger projects and, you know, innovation queens and and some of these really, you know, big ones. But then also there's lots of local battles often around, you know, more modest projects. Again, it's still a rezoning that needs to get approved. Uh, somebody wants to build something where there isn't something or build something bigger or more housing instead of something that's been there. all of these things that you know they may need approval to change the zoning that has to go through ultimately the city council. Um, but as much as we get caught up in so much of that, the real key to actual sort of large scale growth and housing supply growth is through the broader changes to zoning that apply much more broadly than when we get into these single, Proposals and that sort of often gets lost in the shuffle, and 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 that's part of what's sort of coming down the pike here from um, the Adams administration, and the Department of City Planning, as they craft this uh, citywide zoning text amendment. Right.
1: That's correct, and and I, I do want to underscore the importance of the neighborhood rezonings as as a catalyst for housing production. So the top four community boards responsible for housing production over the last uh, decade were uh, all areas that were rezoned from manufacturing to residential. So, you know, I, I think that's really important when we think about, one, we have an as-of-right regulatory regime through the zoning resolution. Most of our housing, most of our development occurs as-of-right, where you are following those rules. You get your build. you know, you still have to go for approvals from the Department of Buildings, but from a zoning perspective, you, you follow the rules, you build the building to this envelope, to that density, to that floor area ratio, right, to to the particular uses, and, and you go ahead. It's those discretionary actions, though, while they are, are not necessarily the number-wise all of the projects, but they represent an outsized share of our housing production and are really important.
0: Interesting point. Yeah, that, I mean, that's sort of in between the two poles that I was discussing, I guess, right, the, the neighborhood rezonings, which are... Um, We've got a couple of them, uh, sort of in conversation right now, but that doesn't seem to be somewhere where the Adams administration is really focused yet. Is that something where you and Rebney would urge them to be a little more um, assertive and aggressive on pursuing those sort of neighborhood rezonings and community plans, as as they're sometimes called?
1: So, under the Bloomberg administration, there were over a hundred. Uh, of these kind of neighborhood rezonings Uh, under the de Blasio administration, we had 10, Um, I believe we ended up with 10, Uh, you know, and those conversations have become more fraught and challenging because we don't have more land that we're adding. Right. So you're either going back and changing zoning that was done 20 years ago, 30 years ago, or in some cases, 70 years ago. Right. And each of those tiers is a a different conversation. And I wouldn't say a different degree of change. There's a lot of control by the individual council members and and the need for buy in there. And, you know, some could argue we have lost sight of that borough wide lens or that city wide lens, which is why I think we continue to come back to this conversation of Do we need targets? Do we need a comprehensive plan? How do we want to go about this in a way that is not necessarily so um, neighborhood by neighborhood based? And I think, again, I think one of the important takeaways from the governor's housing compact when we're looking at the city context is there that could have been a way to force that conversation. Uh, you know, I'm encouraged by the city council speaker. Um, I believe there is an announcement today, actually, as we're as we're talking right yes. now about uh, fair housing uh, growth legislation and, and thinking through these issues thoughtfully building on the work under the prior administration under the de Blasio administration on where we live, which was the city's way of affirmatively furthering fair housing from the um, Obama era HUD rule. So I think again, I, I think there is a lot of desire to think, take this kind of bigger picture look and, and start thinking about things um, in a very thoughtful, coordinated way. Not to take away though, from those Bloomberg rezonings again, because rezonings are a really important way to catalyze housing production. So when you, when you fall off on the, on the rezoning side, like what are you replacing it with?
0: Hmm. Um, We're in our last few minutes here with Basha Gerhard, senior vice president of planning for Revni, the real estate board of New York. Um, So You're in favor of a variety of of these plans and proposals from the governor and other pieces of the agenda, uh, finding a replacement for 421A, tax exemption, things we've discussed here, lifting the FAR cap um, and, and more. You are in favor of the housing access voucher program, which would be a new state voucher program to help keep people Uh, Struggling to pay the rent in their homes or help people experiencing homelessness have a voucher to get into an apartment. Of course, the ability to use those vouchers also comes back to supply constraints. Um, But as you mentioned earlier, in a sense, good cause eviction legislation was something strongly opposed by Rebney. This was something opposed by Governor Hochul. Some people say the governor. Uh, people in the real estate community who have her ear, um, others weren't able or willing to get to a compromise with the legislature because they were so opposed to good cause eviction legislation that would put caps on annual rent increases, insist on lease renewals in most cases, and put other regulations in place across the private rental housing market. What can you say about sort of, the willingness in the real estate development community and, and others that you represented, Rebney, about trying to strike some sort of grand bargain. My reading, not to sort of let the question off the hook a little bit, but my reading of the situation, which I have said to state legislators on this show, which was that there, there wasn't really support in the legislature for much of the governor's housing plan anyway. So there wasn't really, you know, seemingly much of a grand bargain for her to reach. Is, it, was, it was a little bit of my read on it. Even if she was open to some version of good cause eviction, she wasn't getting a sense from the legislature that there was a lot of openness to her mandatory growth targets. And that was the statement that she issued, which was that the legislature is not on board on mandatory growth. And I don't want to just do a sort of like, you know, incentive only, you know, put some money out there and, and, you know, that's all we're going to do. So what was your, you know, the real estate development community's sort of stance on that. And the idea of trying to compromise on a variety of these things to get some kind of bigger deal done when virtually nothing wound up getting done.
1: You know, at the end of the day, there's, there's a couple of things we wanted to stay focused on. Are we solving our problems? Uh, good cause, no one has said solves housing supply. Um, and I'm not clear how it impacts the bulk of the eviction filings that occur. So 80% of eviction filings are related to non-payment. Good cause does not reduce someone's rent burden. It does not help them pay the rent. It does not help them stay in their home if they are rent burdened and unable to pay the rent, right? Like that, that statute does not deal with that core problem around wage stagnation and the ability to pay rent. Um, I think what was disappointing and I will assign a feeling of disappointment to this on um, the housing access voucher program 50% of the vouchers are supposed to go to people who are already housed and facing instability so they are in an apartment, need help paying their rent. It will go to them. So yes, there's 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 always the need for more supply, and and we we can have much we can have a whole another hour conversation on you know voucher placements and source of income discrimination and the importance of enforcement around that, and the importance of, of making sure our voucher system works and and is administered in a way that is effective and efficient, so that people do not stay longer in shelter. But Housing Access Voucher Program HAVP was designed to be flexible and to help people where they are. And, and I think that is, you know, disappointing in all of this because it was an upstream intervention. It was, you know, kind of sidesteps the supply problem in a lot of ways, because it's not like we were looking to move someone out of shelter into a unit or into another unit. It was about helping people where they already are on a statewide basis.
0: You don't obviously, you know, any advocacy group, um, even, even some of the most powerful, like Does't you know, doesn't necessarily get some sort of full or even partial veto on uh, you know certain compromises or or whatever it might be, but can have a lot of influence on a discussion. Is the idea of sort of the real estate community taking, you know, having to sort of deal with, however negatively viewed, some version of good cause in order to get these other things, including potentially a replacement for 421A and growth targets and mandates and and these things, is that sort of considered on the table for your community and your advocacy, or is that something where you just say if if a version of good cause eviction is included, as far as we're concerned, we don't want to be part of this negotiation.
1: I'm just going to keep going back to are we helping our housing supply problem and the statute that is currently before the Senate and the Assembly in in New York state is pretty much a carbon copy of what St. Paul passed, where production dropped 80 percent. So Mayor has said we need 500,000 units over the next 10 years, a 800,000 units statewide. Good cause is a statewide bill. So, you know, would I love conversions? Would I love 12FAR? Would I love four more years for projects that are shovel ready today and have their financing agreement to um, use the benefit they were eligible for and they just need more time to build the building? And then this is a 421A completion deadline. Yes, all of those things will help. But None of that matters if you're destroying the cross subsidization from the market rate housing, if you're changing the definition of rent, if you're capturing new construction, if you're changing the uh, definition for tenant, um, if you don't allow someone to take a unit back for their grandchild or for a family member, which I quite frankly, I continue to find quite regressive coming from the quote-unquote progressive um, branch who are are pushing that statute. So it's not just about the rent cap. It's not just about the right to renew. It's about the 10 different ways that bill fundamentally changes how housing would be regulated and ignores the fact that a third of our housing and half of our rental housing is already subject to control and regulation under rent stabilization.
0: Hmm. All right, we uh I wanted to ask you about this. It's it's sort of tangential to a lot of this conversation, okay. but it, it came up um is scaffolding reform. You know, I had I had the oh my gosh. <laughs> just real one quick minute, you know, I had Manhattan Borough President Mark Levine on the show around his state of the city. I he didn't get into scaffolding reform at the time, but I threw it out there as a question because it's something, you know, that comes up a lot and and you know, even all over the city, you see uh, the the sidewalk sheds and the scaffolding and so forth, and people are very frustrated by how long it stays up and all that. So I asked him about it, and he said, actually, we're working on that. And then he came out with a plan not much uh, longer after we spoke. So he and, and city council members have put forward some stuff on scaffolding reform to ensure that it, basically, I mean, in part, comes down quicker. Is that something that Rebney is, is focused on? And any quick, quick comment on that?
1: I'm laughing because it's like the one thing I don't actually know a lot. Oh, okay, about.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, it wasn't something I was really planning on asking you, but since it, you know, it's sort of related to real estate ownership and and development and uh, repairs and all that, so.
1: My, my my baseline understanding, my, my very baseline understanding is that the scaffolding law
0: contributes to one of
1: the cost drivers of, of construction and, and maintaining property. Um it, it causes a lot of issues. I I think again, there's this kind of you know tension between like how much safe like how much safety do you need to have and, and like and have these structures and for how long do they need to be up versus a function of like how long does it take to get a permit and once you once it's installed and get the work done and what happens if the financing dries up right. Like, I think it's, you know, it, it, there's a lot of reasons they're up for so long and there's probably a lot of reasons why they could come down sooner. Hmm.
0: All right, we will leave it there. <laughs> Thank you for all the time. Uh, My pleasure. Basha Gerhards is uh, Senior Vice President of Planning for REVNI, the Real Estate Board of New York, leading policy work on a whole variety of issues related to housing, land use, zoning, and more. Thanks for the time and we'll be in touch down the road.
1: All right, thanks for having me today, Ben.
0: Thank you. <laughs>